It's live. It's live. Bob, add secure to hook. A tent peg. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk around about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Amen. Okay, uh, we'll tell the folks online that are watching that if there's a problem with the streaming today, we're sorry. Um, we just we had some changes, and we had to make a whole bunch of upgrades to the system. And so if there's a problem, if we lose the stream for any reason, um, it'll be online later, but the stream is working now, and we're happy about that. So let's see here. We've got a couple prayer requests. Um, I got an email from some folks in Germany, and she said, um, uh, uh, let me just cut out all that. Okay, um, most of the people in our city don't know what's written in the Bible. Oh, there's a special Bible center here. Uh, one of the prominent German Bible translators of the Middle Ages, just before Martin Luther lived here, and there's a Bible translation named after this city, which is Barther Bibel. So, and I know I pronounced that wrong, but uh, so we would appreciate if some of your people at your church would pray for us. And then we have smarted, started a small association club of seven people to spread out the gospel of Christ. This small group is planning to make a special exhibition about the history and archeology span of the Bible next year during August and September. The mayor of the city is supporting us, but we do need people from other cities to help us build and run the exhibition. Please pray especially for that event. We wanna reach out not only to citizens of BART and the region, but of the tourists that are visiting our well-known region near the Baltic Sea. Therefore, we ask people from all of Germany to support us in a practical way. Two German Bible translators and one brilliant Bible scholar teacher already told us to support us with special lectures at the evenings. It was a miracle and a confirmation to us that God made this possible. He will prepare everything else as well. So keep them in prayer so that they can have success. They have <coughs> no real church to speak of that they in the area they're at, and it's... Uh, uh, kind of a tough situation for them, but they're pressing on in hopes of getting people to know the Lord. And uh, let's see here, Bill Steves, I asked for prayers for him last week, and I haven't heard anything concerning him. So um, I will just say the Lord knows what his needs are and continue to pray for him. And then uh, Stephanie's daughter is something we've all gone through or we've seen family members go through it. Uh, she's lying chronically and making poor friend choices and she is unapologetic when she gets caught lying and she needs serious prayer so we would ask that you would pray for Stephanie's daughter and then um, Chris Lee's boss he's up north he's been here a couple times to visit and he's uh, having some uh, personal issues and some business issues that are causing him some grief and so uh, Lee is asking for us to pray for Chris and uh, to uh, hopefully uh, help him out in his heart and in his mind as he goes through these difficult times and uh, uh, gets things focused properly in his life. So we'll go ahead and pray for them. And then we'll, what's that? Oh, okay. I just got back from that. Thank you. 
I'm not feeling so well today, so I, I'm not thinking. But uh, I just got back from the hospital a little while ago, and Emma is, uh, man, she was looking great today. She was able, believe it or not, to raise her right hand about this far. So, I mean, just a little bit off of her, but that's, they said that it starts at the foot, and then they start to get the ability up, and the, the right arm is really the last thing. So that means everything is being reconnected now. And all it takes is just to get the muscle back, to get all that. But she was looking great. Uh, she completely shaved her head because she was shaved on the one side where she had an operation. And so what they did is she said, I, I want it to all grow back out together. So she shaved her head and she looks like a movie star, you know, when the lady shaved their head for something. And uh, so she was smiling and happy and it was very, very nice to see her. So keep Emma in prayer. She's making great, great progress. Praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Lord. Yes, Heavenly Father. We thank you for the chance to pray for these needs and these people and the situations that have arisen and so many <coughs> others that are left unstated by people or that uh, more personal in nature. And uh, Lord, we just uh, bring these to you and we ask that your hand will be with these people and to help them. And we're very grateful for how you're taking care of Emma. And uh, Lord, you know the other issue that's arisen with her. And uh, so we lift that up to you and I'll tell the people, but please help that to work out for her and her mother's benefit as well. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we love you for all you do for us, and we ask that you bless this class and help us to keep focused and directed on you in this class and what is appropriate in your word. May it be so to your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, Emma may be facing moving all the way up to Blake Medical Center, and that, you know, that's going to hamper everybody. I mean, everybody lives in Sarasota, and to drive all the way up there will mean she won't be getting many visitors and her mother who's been there every time I've been there will have to go all the way to Blake every day and that's a that's a long drive. What's Blake I mean, got over uh, Nothing, before? it's the insurance oh and so gosh. she's going to appeal that and she's I think she can appeal it right now but there's a facility on Bee Ridge right by where her mother lives or she can stay at Sarasota Memorial and they've got that great rehabilitative facility so we just ask that you would pray and hopefully Emma will be able to stay closer to home and you know I can't get up to Blake twice a week there there's no way I don't have to it's an hour drive up and an hour drive back and you spend 10 minutes there and uh, you know I, I, I just can't do it so um, it's just one less person being able to visit her and the other people that live down here that it, it's just going to make it hard and it'll make it lonely for her. so we want to pray that that doesn't happen and they can keep her close by Okay, let's read this year in Christian history. Today is June 23rd. Even more important to Charles Hodge than his students were his own children. Yesterday we read of the great ministry to students that theologian Charles Hodge had, which we didn't read because we weren't here, uh, while teaching on the faculty at Princeton Seminary. But even more important to him than his students were his own children. The Hodge children were an active and lively bunch who loved to play in their large house on the seminary grounds as well as on the campus. Whenever Hodge was not teaching a class, he was at his study in his home. From the summer of 1833 to the winter of 1836, Hodge even taught his classes in his home, either in the large back parlor or in his study. Hodge's study was also where the seminary faculty meetings were held <clears throat> and where college and seminary professors would gather for regular times of discussion and fellowship. 
Almost every night a college pastor or scholar stopped by and the children looked on with interest as great debates and discussions took place. Hodge's study had two doors. One was an outside door for students or other faculty members to use. The other door was into the main hall of the houses so that he was always available to his children. One of his sons recalled how he led daily family prayers and taught his children at his knee with such tenderness that however naughty they may have been, their ears and hearts melted at his touch. As part of their morning family worship, they repeated a personal consecration to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that Hodge had written for his family. In such an atmosphere of openness and availability, the children followed their father's faith and each made an early commitment to the Lord Jesus. Many of the students became familiar to the family. When Hodge's 10-year-old son Archibald and daughter Mary Elizabeth heard that James Eckerd, one of the One of the seminary graduates was soon to set sail as a missionary to Ceylon. The two children wrote a letter on 23 June 1833 to send with Eckerd. It read, Dear heathen, the Lord Jesus Christ hath promised that the time shall come when all the ends of the earth shall be his kingdom. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And if this is promised by a being who cannot lie, why do you not help to come sooner by reading the Bible and attending the words of your teachers and loving God and renouncing your idols? Take Christianity into your temples and soon there will be a, not a nation, no, not a space of ground as large as a footstep that will not want a missionary. No, uh, yes, my sister and myself have by small self-denials procured two dollars which are enclosed in this letter to buy tracts and Bibles to teach you. And it's signed Archibald Alexander Hodge and Mary Elizabeth Hodge, friends of the heathen. Archibald Alexander Hodge grew up to succeed his father as professor of systematic theology at Princeton Seminary. We can see the priority that Charles Hodge placed on spending time with his children. Many of the most important lessons we can impart to children come about because we are in the right place at the right time to teach them. Can you think of ways that God can use you more in the lives of the children in your sphere of influence? Proverbs 22.6, teach your children to choose the right path, and when they are older, they will remain upon it. It's been said because a lot of people will say, well, the Bible says that. Why is that not the case with my child who's 14 or 16 and they're strayed? And it says, teach your children when they are young and when they are old, they will not depart from it. There is a time in life where you will probably depart from it because the whole world is coming at you when you're between 12 and 25 years old. And so uh, it's a general precept, by the way. It is not a, uh, an absolute, but it's a general precept. But the idea is that most children that are raised in the way of the Lord will end up kind of deviating away. There are exceptions, but the majority of them eventually grow their brain back and then they come back into the faith of their, the parents. And so it's just something that uh, you need to consider is that when they're old, they will not depart from it. And that doesn't mean teens, okay? So if you're struggling with a teen right now or somebody a little bit beyond their teens, we understand. I think everybody here has faced that. So. Yeah, there you go. Um, we are in, <clears throat> excuse me, we're in Philippians, and we're in verse 4, 16. I think, 
I think we will finish Philippians today. And if we do, I don't care when we finish, we're gonna just close and I'm gonna go home because I'm not feeling great at all. I was up all night with a roll of toilet paper next to me and blowing my nose and, and that kind of thing. So I'm just going to uh, do my best. I'm sorry if my voice isn't very spunky and I'm not too attentive today. I, I apologize, but here we go, 416. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Okay, this one says for my necessities, but it's basically the same. Philippi was an extremely poor church as far as worldly wealth is concerned. On the other hand, we just was talking, uh, I was talking to Burke before we started today, and we're talking about a church here in Sarasota that uh, uh, was pretty much funded by a guy that um, uh, lived here in Sarasota, and he died recently. And one of the things he said in his will was um, that he was leaving some money for the church if it was handled within a certain amount of time. And Burke noticed that they immediately got on the wagon and started figuring out what to do with the money. So there are churches that have lots of money and there are churches that are not so well funded. And uh, in the case of Philippi, it was an extremely poor church as far as worldly wealth is concerned. But on the other hand, Thessalonica was much richer. And yet it was the Philippians who supported Paul when he was in Thessalonica. I have said this before, I will say it again. And it's something that I think that if you look into your own life and evaluate yourself, you will say, yeah, it's true. Whether you do anything about it or not is your choice. But uh, if you know people that have a need and you hear of it, it is always the people that have less that give more. It's not always the case, but it is generally the case. A church that hears about something going on, a great need, and will say Bangladesh or Kenya, and they hear, and they will go beyond themselves to take care of that. And then the rich churches may send $50. I mean, it's, it's very sad, but that's the way it is. And as an example, so people remember, I've said this a couple times, is when I traveled around the US in 2010, and I preached at all 50 capitals, and people would ask me to stay at their house. Please stay with us. That'll save you finding a place for the night. Okay, and I was very grateful for everybody that did. But I can tell you the people that were the poorest always were the most generous. Oh, it was just amazing how you would go in and they would have nothing in their house. And yet they would, when I left, there would be a pot full of food that was now put into Tupperware that they went out and bought just for the occasion. They'd fill it all up and they'd say, this will take care of it for the next 10 days. And they had nothing, literally. You know, and I'm just saying, evaluate yourself, evaluate what your priorities are, and then do what you think about that. Um, the reason why, and I said this as well, but it'll be a good reminder, is that when you have a lot, you need to keep a lot, okay? When you don't have anything, there's nothing you need to keep. So people that have a lot generally do not give because they are protecting what they have. They're investing it. They're doing this and they're doing that. But people that just have regular lives or maybe even on the lower side of middle income will they'll have less care about keeping it because they know that they're earning right now and they know what their budget is and so they don't worry about things like that and they're very generous givers and so um, this is something that the Bible says this and it is borne out I have seen in people in churches in congregations and now don't get me wrong there are people that uh, are wealthy that uh, like watch the prophecy update 
I don't know if they watch any of the church stuff, but they watch the Prophecy Update, and they'll hear of something, and they'll send the whole amount to take care of something they'll mention over in the Philippines or in Kenya. They'll just say, I want that taken care of. They understand the priorities, but I would say that is the exception rather than the rule. It is a person that has a lot of money and says, I am going to use this to do good in the process of possessing this. And so, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying people are people and they're going to do exactly what they're going to do. But uh, uh, it, the poor people generally give out of their poverty. And, uh, well, Jesus said it the widow with the two mites. I mean, that's all she had in the world. And she put it in there. You know, the Lord will provide. He'll take care of me. Whereas the rich people were just giving a little bit out of their wealth. And so it didn't affect them. Okay, but if you set that over here and you set that over here and you say, oh my gosh, look at how much he gave. I want him to sit in the better seat. And James says, that's sin, right? He says that you have a person that's well-dressed and he comes in the congregation, you sit down here. And he says to the poor person, you stand here or sit at my feet. Well, you've, be, you, you've sinned. I don't remember the exact quote, but he gives that lesson as well. So you want to treat everybody impartially if somebody has a need, if somebody's in the hospital, you go visit the person in the hospital. It doesn't matter if they're poor or rich, okay? If somebody has a need and you can help, go help, all right? Anyway, we'll go on. And yet it was the Philippians who supported Paul while he was in Thessalonica. The poorer church is taking care of him while he's at the richer church, okay? And uh, let's see here. The Greek reads both once and twice. They sent aid to him. It is a way of saying that they helped him and then sent more again later. Paul even notes both in 1 and 2 Thessalonians that he worked with his own hands in order to support himself. This is something he could not have written to them, meaning those in Thessalonica, unless it was true. Along with his own work, he received from Philippi, but not from the Thessalonians. That is seen in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9, which I'll get right here, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. Uh, okay, and then he says it again in 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, verse 8. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 9. Um, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel free. We preach, I'm sorry, yes, uh, we preach to you the gospel of God. Okay, and then in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8, he says... Um, once again, he couldn't have said this if it wasn't true. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, he's obviously giving them a lesson. They're a rich church. They got plenty of money. And he says, I'm not going to accept anything from them. And that will teach them a lesson that, that we are not there to... For their money. For their money. Exactly. Thank you. My brain is not working well enough to think quickly, but he's not there for their money. Whereas in Philippi, he had no problem taking it because he understood that they were poor, he's a worker, he's not rich, and so they're just blessing each other. And so that was a wonderful, wonderful way of him showing that he is not doing it for money by going to these richer churches and saying, gee, you know, I, I could use a little help here. And instead he did exactly the opposite, and he refused to eat their bread without paying for it. So um, what this verse then shows us is that those in Philippi helped him not only when he departed Macedonia, which he said in verse 15, but even while still in Macedonia and attending to a sister church. It may seem curious that he would accept help 
from one church that was so poor and not from other churches which were wealthy, but Paul was teaching them a lesson. The poor were exalted through their giving while the rich were humbled through his example of working with his own hands. Neither was inappropriate, but perfect for the circumstances of the church. He wisely instructed others about how to conduct themselves in both spiritual matters and in life's daily matters, which were connected to the spiritual. Life application. Let us remember those who are in the field and in need, helping them with their necessities. Let us also tend to them with an additional blessing so that they can be filled. Uh, some of you probably get uh, either weekly or monthly or whatever updates from missionaries, okay? The, Jody used to send one out every month, and they would say what their needs are. These are our prayer needs. And then you might get something from uh, um, Ray and Jess over in Papua New Guinea or whoever. Okay, you're on their list. And sometimes they will say something kind of in veiled terms. They won't be asking for money, but they'll say, well, this great need has come up, and uh, you know we're, we know the Lord is uh, going to meet it, or we're trusting in the Lord to meet it, or something like that. That means they're asking you. That's what that means. They are asking you to help them. And so if you see something like that, don't just say, oh, okay, and then click delete the email and go on. Say, they have a need. They're indirectly asking because they don't want to be a burden on anybody because they know that the poorer people are the ones that are going to respond. They know that. And so they're indirectly saying what they're saying because they want you to participate. So pay attention when you read those once a month. And when you see that, just say, you know what? I'm going to make a note and I'm going to commit on next Wednesday when I pay my bills to add something in for them. Big help to those people because they cannot do the things that they say, we know the Lord will provide unless somebody provides as prompted by the Lord. And that would hopefully be you. So um, let us remember those who are in the field and in need, helping them with their necessities. Let us also tend to them with an additional blessing so they can be filled. We're going to send you $150 for taking care of that, but we're sending you $25 so that you and your wife can go out to the Lanai um, Tiki Bar over there and you can have dinner all by yourselves and the maid will take care of the kids or something, whatever, okay? Just add in something else just for them and that will be nice. Okay, 417. 417. <coughs> Not that I'm looking for a gift, but... I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Okay, this one's a little different. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. <clears throat> Paul now speaks of the gift from the Philippines or the Philippians to him. He is being delicate in order to make it clear that he is not seeking anything more from them. There is no insinuation that he would do so. Rather, he says, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Fruit in the Bible is that which results from something else. You plant a plant, the plant grows, you put some water on it, eventually it has a flower, the flower turns into a fruit, okay? If something positive is done, then the fruit is the result. If something evil is done, then the, res the result will be bad fruit. Okay, I said then good fruit is the result. If something evil is done, then the result will be bad fruit. Therefore, he is saying that he looks for them to have a positive result added to their account. If it be because of a gift to him, then that is a blessing indeed. He will expand on this in verse 19. His words show that it is as if there is an account set up from which the church draws blessing for their efforts. 
In the case of a gift to him, their account was growing. And this is similar to the thought of Proverbs chapter 19, Psalms and then Proverbs, Charlie. Okay, Proverbs 19, and it is verse 17. Next page. So, let's see here. He who has, oh, here it is. Yes, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will pay back what he has given. So there you go. It's like the same thing is happening in the church. The Proverbs are not something that fall under the law and then end with the law. Okay, Proverbs are a part of what kind of literature? Wisdom literature. Yes, they're not poetical. Now, there may be some poem poetry in the Proverbs, but they are known as wisdom. The Psalms are wisdom, Job is wisdom, the Song of Solomon is wisdom, and um, Ecclesiastes. Those are the five books of wisdom from the Old Testament. Some of them have poetry, some of them don't. Um, and then there's one in the New Testament that is very close to wisdom literature. Which one would that be? James. James, 59th book of the Bible. James is very close. It, it, it hinges heavily on things that are found in the wisdom books, and he just expands on them. So, um, uh, yes, Proverbs 19:17. You're making an account with the Lord when you do these things. Though a poor person cannot pay back a debt, it is considered as a payment to the Lord who can repay it, and he will do so with abundance added in. Such as the general idea of the words of Paul to the Philippians. Okay, sometimes I write, if you read my commentaries, I have the word Philippines, and I've had somebody send me a correction. Please don't say Philippines. It's because I've got a daughter that was from the Philippines, and it's always on my mind. So um, uh, if you see that, um, I've already corrected it in the commentary, but it may be in an old commentary you have if you read along. Okay, life application. Jesus told Israel to give to everyone who asks of you. The idea is that when someone is in need, we should not withhold our hand from helping that person. He also tells us elsewhere to be wise and discerning. Therefore, his words are to be taken in the sense of true needs. Let us be willing to help those who are truly in need, not without, not withholding what will help them out. Okay, and so that's a good lesson. Uh, there are people that have no needs at all, and yet they continue to ask, and they ask constantly. The guy out in, uh, what's his name? The, he looks like uh, kind of like the devil sometimes when he's preaching. He's um, uh, uh, Kenneth Copeland. He's got already five jets, and a couple of years ago he asked for $80 million because we need a new Learjet. That's a guy that doesn't need your money, okay? I assure you, he doesn't. And yet people every year send him millions and millions of dollars, okay? I would not want to be that guy when he dies. He's in his high 80s, so when he punches his ticket, he's the one that's got to stand before the Lord. I would not want to be that guy. But, you know, he's got people bamboozled, and so that's his thing. Live for this world, yes. My translation <coughs> has profit instead of fruit. Oh, profit instead of fruit. Well, that's a good one. Yeah, for your profit, because you mentioned there about That's increasing. right. And what was yours? Uh, credit. Credit, profit, and fruit. They're all kind of the same idea. I bet, and I don't know this, but I bet you the Greek word is fruit. I'll bet you. So, and then they're just translating it from there. Okay, we're in 418. We're just zipping along right now. I have re received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus. 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 The uh, gifts you sent. It stops there? 
period. Okay. Oh, oh nope. They okay. are a frag oh, fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Okay. I, you know, if sometimes they deviate, and then there'll be a footnote, but there was no footnote. Yeah. So I was like, hmm, I'm going to read this one. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So good stuff there. Okay, um, uh, you know, before I go on, it just came to mind, we didn't pray for them, but Sergio and Rhoda, uh, they spent like 12 hours this week on one day, the entire day, trying to find a car, and it's really not been easy. They finally got a car, so they have that. They're right now, instead of in class, shame on them, they're um, working on getting a house to rent. And so we would pray that that, if you think of it later, pray for them, that that would go smoothly. He's been able to get very little work done because he's been trying to get all these things. You know, when you move, you have to get all 10,000 little things done. And I know that it's stressful on them. I know it is, even though they never complain about anything. So keep them in prayer that they'll continue to have a smooth transition. And pretty soon they'll be just, you know, happy as can be. But right now, it's just been long, long days for those two. So um, 418, this abounding which Paul speaks of concerns the gift which he has received from them. He was in distress, as is noted in verse 14 that we saw last week. They understood this and sent along the gift to help him in his plight. From that gift, he was not only brought out of distress, but he was full, even to overflowing, as is seen in the words, I have all and abound. And then he again says, I am full. There was no lack, but instead he was fully satisfied. As he says, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. So Epaphroditus, remember, he was the one that came and brought him the stuff, and he's helping out Paul. And then he got so sick that hey, Paul thought the guy is going to die. He didn't say, in Jesus' name, I heal you. Okay, he probably tried. The Lord withheld his healing to teach us a lesson that we don't just claim things in Jesus' name. Epaphroditus survived, and he sent him back saying, "He, you know, I, I'm sending him back to you. And anyway... Uh, you remember that from earlier in the book. But just because somebody claims something in Jesus' name, especially on TV, does not mean that it actually happens, okay? Be wise and discerning about people like this because there are all kinds of people out there that do all kinds of things on TV and in churches, and they're charlatans. Be very careful with people that do that. But, um, and we know that because Paul, it wasn't just an isolated incident. There's three or four others that I go through from time to time and tell you about them. Trophimus was left sick in Miletus, and Timothy had bad stomach problems, and Timothy was with Paul for eons. He was always with Paul. And Paul didn't just say, okay, I'm going to heal you now. The Lord withheld healing from Timothy. We have that in the Bible, and Paul says, drink a little wine for your constant stomach problems, okay? So we know these things, and there are other examples as well, including Paul himself. Paul could not heal himself, and none of the other apostles came along and healed Paul. He lived with his uh, affliction, and so there. You, I know that's a little bit of a diversion, but okay, Epaphroditus, the things uh, sent from you. As a congregation, they came together and decided upon a gift for him. After that, and this is, remember, this is a poor church, and so you can expect a very generous gift coming from them. That's it, just, I, that's usually the way it is, is the poor churches and these people that have so little are so willing to put forth. And it's because they understand the grace that was bestowed upon them. And I'm not making a comment that rich people that come to Christ don't understand grace. 
But if you've already got a life that is full of all kinds of good blessings like we have in America, and you find out that Jesus died for your sins, you may not be as impressed as a person that lives in squalor in a caste system in India. And that person has been told all their life that they are nothing, that they're the lowest of castes and that nobody wants them and they're the refuse of the earth. And somebody comes along and says, the God of creation came into humanity and he died for you. That person is going to understand grace in a way that we will never understand it. And so uh, these poor people in Philippi heard the message of the gospel and they said, we're just a poor bunch of people. How can you have grace on me? And they appreciated it and the rest of their life, they're helping out their dear apostle Paul. Once again, I'm not saying, you know, because we all in this church right now, okay, we all have medium, whatever, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, Middle-class lives, we're all doing pretty well. We understand grace. I'm not saying that people that are rich or middle-class or whatever don't understand that, but poor people really get it. When they understand that Christ did something for them, how wonderful it is, okay? As a congregation, they came together and decided upon a gift for him, okay? After that, they chose Epaphroditus to be the one that carried the gift to him. When he came to Paul, the gift was received by him as a gift, not to himself, but as an offering to God of which he was the benefactor. In Israel, certain offerings were taken to the temple. These were received by the priests and then offered to God. However, in many of the offerings, only a portion was presented on the altar, and the rest became the priest's portion. Some of them also went back to the the giver, okay, or was shared with the priest, but in some cases, it was the priest's portion. You know, I will qualify something. I just was talking about people being saved on a monetary level, okay? But I will tell you that there are people that are very, very wealthy that are also very, very corrupt, And when they find out that all of their sin guilt is taken away, they understand grace, just like the poorest person that understands grace. So I'm not trying to say that money is the only denominator for people, but there are people that are, you know, they've lived pretty good lives and they're, you know, whatever, and they may not appreciate grace quite the way that somebody that has gotten away with, you know, millions of dollars bilking others or something, you know, whatever. So there are many ways of appreciating the grace of Christ, many, okay? But um, the uh, point about the poorer churches that they've been poor their whole life and they've gotten no attention from anybody and all of a sudden they're getting attention from the creator. That was the point I was giving. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, the entire offering that uh, some of it became the priest's portion. However, the entire offering was one which was truly considered as given to the Lord because the priest is the Lord's representatives. He's, he's the mediator between the people and the Lord. So he is standing in place of the Lord, mediating for them. Okay, so um, yes, however, the entire offering was one which was truly considered as a given to the Lord. Paul had received this gift in this manner. From the Philippians, he said, this is like an offering that is given to the Lord, noting that it was a sweet smelling aroma. When we were going through the Leviticus sermons and all of the details of Christ, I came to this verse many times and compared it directly to Christ because that is exactly why Paul wrote this. He's equating it to Christ, the Lord, and that's what Leviticus is showing us, the the type revealing the antitype, okay? So this is Old Testament terminology, a sweet-smelling aroma for a sacrifice which was acceptable to God. 
It is not that God had a nose. God does not have a nose. But that was offered, was considered as if he did. When it was burnt on the altar, it was a clean animal. It was without um, spot or blemish. It was offered to the Lord by the person, and the Lord accepted it as if he was just breathing it in and saying, I accept this. It's so good, okay? In fact, certain offerings came with a measure of frankincense added to them. If you don't remember what the frankincense pictured, go back and watch the sermons where frankincense is mentioned. It is very, very wonderful. It comes from the word dolor, which means liberty or freedom, okay? And so uh, everything about every material that was used in the incense or every uh, thing that was applied to the, uh, the oil, you know, the, uh, the oil of sprinkling, everything points to Jesus, all of it. But um, we'll go on. Um, uh, this was taken along with the portion, meaning the frankincense, of the meat to be burned, and both were then burned on the altar. The word used to describe this burning, which in Hebrew is katar, specifically means incense, and it indicated to make sacrifices smoke. This is what Paul is referring to here. It was thus an acceptable sacrifice. God was pleased with their offerings, which was which was given to Paul as if it was made directly to him. And it was deemed as such. Therefore, it was, as Paul says, well-pleasing to God. The offering from the Philippians to Paul was as if they had given it to the Lord. And he is equating it exactly to that Old Testament typology. Wonderful. It was as if the smoke of the sacrifice offered by them burned as incense and rose into the heavens to please him as a pleasing aroma. Now, if you remember the symbolism also about incense, incense signifies prayer, right? It, that's explicitly stated in Psalms, let my prayers rise to you as incense. It's also explicitly stated where in the New Testament? Revelation. We know that incense pictures prayer. What is the only thing that entered into the most holy place every day? The incense, the smell of the incense, the altar of incense was placed right in front of the Holy of Holies. It was just a veil, and that smoke would have gone through the veil, which is Christ's torn body, a picture of him. That's explicit from the book of Hebrews, that veil, which is his body. And when that incense was burned, it's the only thing that entered the Holy of Holies 365 days a year, twice a day. Our prayers going through Christ to God, nothing else accept those prayers. And that is the picture that is being given to us. So if you think that your prayers are not getting to God, you are wrong if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, they are not getting to God. I'm sorry. You have a choice to make. Your choice is to call on Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God through him. Or you can keep praying to God forever and ever and ever, thinking he hears you. And if by chance one of those prayers comes about, the Lord God is testing you. He even says that in the book of Deuteronomy. If a prophet gives a prophecy and it comes about, I'm testing you to see if you're going to be faithful to the Lord. Your prayers are not heard because your sins have separated you from your God. Your problem is sin. God is perfect. You are imperfect. He cannot accept your prayers except through Jesus. And once you are in Christ, you are in Christ, and your prayers are acceptable, just as that incense went through the veil, the body of Christ, the mediator for humanity. That is the picture that we should see, and we should never forget that. It is wonderful, wonderful to think about what God has allowed 
because of the giving of Jesus. Okay, it was as if the smoke of the sacrifice offered by them burned as incense and rose into the heavens to him as a pleasing aroma. Life application. When we make an offering with a true heart and in a manner which is Christian and Christ-like, that offering is considered by God as an acceptable offering to him. And because of this, let our hearts and intents be pure in our giving. Just because an offering is made, it does not automatically follow that it is pleasing to God. Okay? We need to have our hearts right with the Lord when we give. If we're just going to send something because we feel under compulsion, and this is the damage. I, I know I say this a lot. I'll bring it up again. This is the damage of preaching tithing in a church. It is because it robs the people in the congregation of having an offering acceptable to God. Because when tithing is preached in a church, it is mandated by the preacher, it is no longer an offering of faith. You are robbing your congregation of their offering by mandating tithing. Now, they may give out of a willing heart if they just ignore the tithing preaching that the preacher is giving, but if he is doing it and they are giving because the preacher said that they need to tithe or they are not right with God, you have denied those people their right within Christianity to receive a reward. It is that serious. Anybody that preaches tithing, I would, after the church, go and talk to the preacher, show him the tithing, say, here, watch the sermon on tithing. If he does it next week, I'd get up and I'd walk out and I would not go back to that church. He is robbing his people of their right to having a propitious relationship in that regard with the Lord. Okay? So, um, where, yes. Um, 19. Uh, yes, let me read that last sentence one more time. Only when such an offering is done in faith is it truly considered as well-pleasing to him. Compulsion is, not. Compulsion is not faith. You are robbing your people of their rightful due by saying, listen, if you want to help these people over in the Philippines and if it is upon your heart to do so and you do so, then you will be given your reward. The pastor doesn't need to say that. I'm just simply exegeting that for you. You will be given your reward. pastor doesn't need to say anything. All he needs to do is say, we have this need. Please help. Okay? And if they do, that's their choice. Okay. 419. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. Okay. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Okay. We've got four more verses. We're going to get it done today. Okay. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm zipping through it. I'm sorry. I'm just, I, we will make it in time. They'll be done. But even if we finish earlier, once again, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go out the door. And I'm going to go home and go to bed. I've got to help somebody move tomorrow and I'm not feeling good. So, uh, 419, the words, my God here are emphatic. Then my God will do this. He is making a stress based on what he just said concerning God. If read together, the stress becomes more evident. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God, once again emphatic, shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. There is somebody sitting here now that when we're in the projects, and he will say quite often to people, he may not give you every one of your wants, but he will provide all your needs. And even your needs that you think are needs may not be needs. 
He will meet those needs according to his wisdom. And I have to tell you, if your need is to be called home today, then he will make sure that that happens. Whatever your need is, the Lord will meet that need. And if he gives you anything else, then how wonderful that is. And so when I pray for these poor people in the projects on Saturday, I will say something like, Lord, meet their needs according to your wisdom. And even if it's your will, exceed it so that they're overflowing and they know that it came from your open hand of grace. Gravy on the table. table. That's exactly right. If he doesn't do it, they know that I did not claim it. They know that I asked for it and he has withheld it. And we'll talk about it again with them next week. Okay. But God will meet everybody's needs according to his wisdom. So don't worry about those things. If in fact you don't get what you want this week, he is still meeting your needs. The offering they made was acceptable to God. Who is Paul's who is Paul's God? He will then draw the two thoughts together in the next verse. For now, he says, and my God shall supply all your need. In Greek it reads, and my God will fill up all the needs of you. It is not just a single need that they will have filled, but all needs, both physical and spiritual. Whatever is lacking will be made full. However, this is not a promise for prosperity. Needs do not equate to desires. God gives us everything we need, but it is not always everything that we want. Okay? Now, having said that, somebody emailed me today, and he said that, you know, there may be some trouble in the company I'm working in. And he said, if that doesn't pan out and things don't work out, then you know, I'm going to have to do something. And he understands that God will meet his needs. Whatever they may be, God will meet his needs. And so his needs may not be what he's getting now because he's having his desires and his wants filled as well. But God will meet his needs. And we've seen that with a couple of people in the church over the past year and a half. They've gone from having all kinds of good jobs and family going great and all of a sudden many bad things start happening in the family one loses his job they have to move they have to do this they have to do that and then pretty soon the lord provides for them again and there's not been a time where he has not met their needs if they looked back over the last year and a half or so they would say man was that a tough year and a half but god met every need according to his wisdom i guarantee you that they would say that so this is what god promises we can stand on that and then we have to just find out what our needs are and did he in fact meet them and you'll find out he did the christian who stands ready to be executed for his faith in christ does not stand and say i claim that bmw in the car lot the prosperity gospel is no gospel the needs of that person are met in his life or in his death by god who has promised us so much more than this temporary woe-filled life All that he gives for our needs are, Paul says, according to his riches. There is no limit of God's ability to give. He can and he will provide abundance to each according to the need, but he will also provide so much more at times as well. In our eternal state, we should never lack, we shall never lack or have want. The riches of God will flow like a never-ending river to satisfy his people. The water of life will be flowing forever from the temple of God. The life will never end. And along with that life is not just a life of stubbing your toe every day and being miserable. It will be a life where everything, every need that you have is met and exceeded forever 
forever. It will not be anything like we're living right now. This is just the test or the trial that we have to get through in order to enter into glory. Again, however, we need to be careful to make a distinction between what is a need and what is a desire, lest we fall into the false teaching of the prosperity gospel. Paul continues by saying that each need is given according to his riches in glory. What is on Paul's mind with the words in glory is debated. Some scholars tie this to the word riches. Others will connect it with the word supply. And then even that can be subdivided between supply your need with glory, meaning with glory to you or with his glory. It's hard to be dogmatic about this, but Vincent's word studies gives a good, well-rounded thought with. He says, the need shall be supplied in glory and by glory, by placing you in glory where you shall be partakers of glory. Everything is a blessing from God. I'll read it again so you can grasp it. The need shall be supplied in glory and by glory, by placing you in glory where you will be partakers of glory. Very well said. I can agree with that. No matter which is correct, Paul finishes with in glory by Christ Jesus. The word by in Greek means in. Therefore, it is provided to God's people by their union with Christ. And so he is not making a statement to anyone, to no person on this planet except those who are of the faith. God does not meet the needs of people by Christ Jesus for those who are not in Christ Jesus. I'm sorry. If you're watching this and you think that God will supply your needs and you are not in Christ, it will not happen. I don't mean to be negative to you, but there's way too much unclear thinking about the nature of God in the world today and within Christianity as well. People do not think clearly that God is infinitely, absolutely, and perfectly holy. There is no sin involved with God. There is no darkness in him. There is only purity. And because we have the taint of sin, God cannot, it is impossible, he cannot fellowship with us without Jesus Christ. He is the only way that that can happen because he came and lived perfectly. And in his perfection, he now offers us fellowship with God. And we cannot do it apart from Christ Jesus. If you simply think it through, if you just simply think through the nature of God, Jim watched the Genesis 1-1 sermon not too long ago, and it talks about the nature of God. Everything about God can be deduced without ever having a Bible. We can just simply sit down if we're willing to think it through and understand these things about God. And so we know that there is this dilemma. We know that there is this chasm between us and God, but we do not know how to fix it. And God did and God sent his son in order to fix it. Christ is the answer. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. It is always about Jesus because without him, that chasm will remain forever. Thank God for what he did in Jesus Christ. Life application. Once again, it is important to make the distinction between what is necessary and what is a want. When we confuse the two, our hope and trust in the Lord may be weakened when we don't get what we want. And that's what prosperity teaching does. It weakens people's faith. Let us understand that God meets all of our needs according to his wisdom. We will never have a time when our needs are not met. 
but our needs are what he determines, not what we feel is correct. What we need will come about, and it will be because he understands what we need. Okay? 420. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so it's almost identical, except I don't think yours said now, did it? Yep. Okay. To our God. Yeah. Okay, and to our God. All right. Um, 420. Paul now issues forth a doxology similar to others elsewhere in his letters. Taken with the previous two verses, we see that he is tying God here to God in the previous verses, but referring to him in a new way. Here are three verses together. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then in verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And verse 20, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So well-pleasing to God and my God, now to our God. He has gone from a general reference to a specific but singular reference to a specific and plural reference. In this verse, our God is the object of praise from the church as a whole. All share in his goodness, and he in turn is worthy of worship of all. It is to our God and Father, Paul's words, then that this is due. Because of Christ, we are brought into the sonship of God, and we are reckoned as children of God. He has become our heavenly Father because of Jesus. Once again, the Nephilim thing from Genesis 6 that everybody takes to the wrong path Throughout the Bible, the sons of God are always those in a right standing with God. Always. Okay? Keep that in mind. It is to him that shall be glory forever and ever. However, there is an article which is missing in this translation. In Greek, it says, the glory. Not all translations put it in there. I guarantee you, if you go to Young's literal translation, he will have included it in there. If I'm wrong, I will eat my shoe next week. Okay? Since I don't wear shoes... It's probably not going to happen, but I, I, I will bet that he has included it because Young's is very, very precise when he translates this and when he understands that even though this may not be necessary, this is the right time to include this article. Okay, so uh, they will use the glory in this verse that there is a glory which we can participate in, but there is a specific glory which belongs to God alone. It is a part of his nature which is incommunicable. This particular glory belongs to him, and it does so forever and ever, according to Paul. Or, as the Greek reads, for the ages of the ages. It is a term which indicates in the strongest sense that it will never, never, never end. Ever. He finishes with amen. So be it, and thus it is so. Using amen here shows the absolute and pivotal excuse me, absolute and pivotal importance of the truth of the statement he has made. Okay, amen, so be it. Let it be so, surety, or however you want to, you know, um, in the Gospel of John, he says, amen, amen, and it's translated by some people as verily, verily, or truth, truth, or something adamant like that, amen. Life application. Paul is known to break into sudden doxologies at various times in his letters, 
Sometimes they happen only at the end, but not always. He let his sense of awe at what God has done guide him in his praise of God. At any and at every moment, that was appropriate. We should likewise follow in this habit. If we are overflowing with awe, then let it out. Whether walking alone on a path, uh, a path of beauty in the deep woods, or whether posting on Facebook, which I'm no longer there, after contemplating his splendor, let our voices and words reflect his surpassing glory with praise to him. Don't hold it back, okay? There, you know, usually when I'm on Twitter, I'm trying to get myself banned from Twitter. But I haven't been able to do that. And once in a while, I will post something just wonderful about Jesus. I don't do it very often. But, um, and the reason why is because I have found that when somebody just pre posts something like that constantly, it, it kind of gets overlooked. When you just do what Paul does and suddenly break into a doxology, people tend to respond better, okay? I, I don't know why that is, but maybe they just say, oh, there's Charlie being Charlie again. And so uh, if you, uh, if you uh, just live your life as you normally would, but when you come to a point where you just want to let it out, let it out. Let people know. Okay. Um, 17, John, se 17 John, verse 24. John 17. John 17. Hang on a sec here. I'm Acts, John 6. We went a little too far there. This thin page, you know, after cleaning the bathroom every Thursday, I can't grab the pages because it's so slippery. And so it takes a little while to get through these pages. 1734. No, 1724. I was just testing to see if you were listening. Okay, um, let's see here. God who made the world. I'm in Acts 1724. It always helps to be in John again. See how small these pages are? They're just really, really thin little pages. Okay, here we go. I'm blaming the Bible and not my own incompetence. Okay, oh yeah. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Are you reading 24? Yeah, oh, I'm in 1624. Well, that's okay because we we're talking about that already. Okay, 1724. You see, that's another problem is when they have a page and it, okay, so. One of the follows. Yeah, yeah, it's just unbelievable. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am. Oh yeah, this fits better with the, the thought of this verse. That's right, let me read that again. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. My glory. my glory, his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah, if you wanna save the people online a lot of time, just read it out loud, but read it loud enough so they can hear you. Because I'm always gonna do something stupid like that. I'm, I'm prone to the stupid, okay? Sorry about that. Okay, we're in uh, verse 21. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. Okay, this one says greet every saint. See, yours says all the saints. All the saints. Oh boy, there's a problem here. Greet, <laughs> <laughs> greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. <laughs> in many letters, Paul personally addresses individuals. Here, he makes a more general statement without specificity, noting anyone. It is unsure why this is the case, but it may be because he has already mentioned several people in the epistle, and he does not want to make specific readings, which might then give the impression that his attitude was less favorable to those he mentioned earlier, such as Euodia and Syntyche, than he led on. 
Okay. Also, there's another reason, and I may have said this, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there are times where he will give a general greeting and you know it's because he doesn't want to miss anybody. You can just tell by the way he's writing. He doesn't want to miss anybody because if he does, if he says, greet this guy and this guy, and then he finds out he missed somebody, that would be bad. This person is a big help to the church. And so, you know, I think this a lot on uh, when we do communion sometimes, I will stop and I'll say, you know, I just want to thank the people for that help this church out. They do this or they do that. And I don't want to say any name because if I say a name, then I have to try to remember every name. And there's a lot of people that just do nice things. You know, they're in different countries around the world or they're, uh, you know, they're just people that I don't even know their real names because they won't tell me. And so I got all this stuff to remember and I know every one of them, but if I forget one of them, I would be embarrassed. And so I know that Paul does the same thing. He doesn't specify. Now, when he did it in Romans, he made a list of like 32 people in Romans. And I'll bet you that he forgot somebody. And somebody was like, why didn't Paul mention me? I I just bet you. I could be wrong. But, you know, I, I don't ever want to overlook the goodness that people bestow upon the church here. Okay? And so I try not to say anybody. I just say something general. Once in a while... I can't help it. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. I have to mention something in this Sunday's sermon. And I will say it now, and I'm giving away in advance, and I hope he doesn't get mad at me. If he does, I'm sorry. But Doug has done something amazing, amazing with the last four paintings. He does a painting for every sermon, right? He does them for individual sermons, and all the work he does he thinks through and he does it. He has done something with the last four paintings, including this one for Sunday, okay? There are four paintings for four acts sermons. He's done something incredible. And when I saw it, I was just sitting there and my hair was standing up and I was like, that is incredible. So don't want to elevate what he did above anybody else, but I can't help but not mention that on Sunday because there was so much effort put into it. And unless I say something, people aren't going to see it. So Okay, Um, yeah, um, for whatever reason, he simply says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. All who are in Christ Jesus are, by default, saints. The idea of sainthood found in the Roman Catholic Church is wholly unbiblical and without any merit at all. Zero. Rather, any and all who have received Christ Jesus are in Christ Jesus, and they are saints. Yes, He would have all greeted in accord with this distinction. He then notes that the brethren who are with me greet you. Why the term brethren is used here instead of saints is a great talk among scholars. Many say that he is speaking of the Jewish believers that were with him. It is true that there were Jewish believers with him, but this would then leave obvious omissions, and it would also illogically divide the body. First, it would omit any Gentiles with him. We know from 1.1 and 2.19 that Timothy is there with him. It is not to be expected that he would so faithfully mention him twice and then ignore him in his final words. Secondly, to say that the Jews were only the only brethren would leave out the Gentiles. But he uses the term of Gentiles elsewhere many times. Suffice it to say that Paul is simply using the term brethren as an indication of the believers there with him, all of them, each a saint as well. And as an important note, Peter is never mentioned here in Philemon, in Romans, and so on. 
when addressing or referring to those in Rome. It shows us without any doubt at all, no doubt, that Peter was not the first pope. If he were, he would be the high, it would be the highest dishonor to overlook such a lofty thing as that. The Roman Catholics claim that Peter was the first pope, and that does not bear up at all when the words of the Bible are considered. The claim is false. Life application. When reading commentaries, be careful to not just assume that the commentator is correct, thus making a new squiggle in your brain, which is incorrect. Instead, read commentaries and then evaluate what has been written. Oh, I mean, I've got to turn the page. Instead, read commentaries and then evaluate what has been written against what you already know about Scripture. Oh, but wait. How can you do that unless you no. already know Scripture? Please read your Bible. Okay, that's, I'm pointing up to a sign on the wall that says, read your Bible. Everybody should, every day, go home and read their Bible and then wake up in the morning and read their Bible. How can you say, I have a close and intimate relationship with God if you don't know what God expects of you? How can you do it? Oh, I go to Bible study once a week and I, we meet for 30 minutes and during the Bible study, we talk about you know uh, daffodils or something. You're never going to know who God is unless you are personally reading your Bible and then you find out that what you're being taught doesn't match what the Bible says and so you have to get that corrected. If you don't know your Bible, you cannot know what you're being taught is wrong. Okay, 422. Uh, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Okay. All the saints seems to show that the brethren of the previous verse are those who are with Paul more directly. The others being referred to as all the saints are those who were found throughout Rome. They either personally or by representative coming to visit Paul had asked to be remembered to the Philippians when he hailed them in this letter. He goes on to say, though, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. This is a term which included all levels within Nero's scope of influence, from the lowest slave or freedman, even to the highest official. The term Caesar is an appellation applied to the office, just as Pharaoh was ascribed to the ruler of Egypt, and as you'll see in the next couple days in the Acts commentary, just as Kandaki, or we have it in our Bibles, Candace is an appellation applied to the queen of Ethiopia. It is applied to the office. It's not a person's name. Thus, it speaks of whoever is in the office at the time, which during the time of Paul's letter was Nero. It is debated why Paul would single these people out, but it may be that it is showing those in Philippi that even the very halls of power were being converted to Christ. If those in such a high place had bowed the knee to Christ, that it was a warm assurance that this life truly means far less than what lies ahead. The place of wealth, power, and pomp was considered as less, as of less importance than that house which is being prepared for those who wait patiently on the Lord. It can be even de be deduced that Paul's chains, as are noted in verse 113, were to be preferred above anything that this world could offer, even in the highest place of the Roman Empire. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Life application. There have been many powerful people in church history who have, <coughs> excuse me, 
willingly bowed the knee to Christ Jesus. As Isaiah prophesied so long ago, kings shall shut their mouths at him. It is the highest honor of all to be called a Christian, and therefore we should never feel that our personal state, whether rich or poor, popular or not, or any other worldly distinction, is a reason to be exalted or humiliated. When we have Christ, we are the most blessed of all. End of story there. Yes? Saints. Saints. It says, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Saints by calling. Right. Saints by calling. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That happens the moment that we are saved. You're sanctified. But there is also the process of sanctification that we could and should follow in this life. So that's right. Many people will take the, uh, I was going to say most, but that's probably not the case, but many people will take the uh, idea of sanctification and say, I'm being sanctified. And they never understand that they are sanctified. When you come to Christ, you are justified, you are sanctified, and you are glorified, okay? You're not actually glorified at this time, but it's a done deal in God's mind. As far as sanctification, though, the verse that he just read right there and others show us that we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, okay? And as we're not being imputed sins anymore, 2 Corinthians 5.19, as I ask every week, you tell me, how can you lose your salvation? How is it? I don't know. Somebody will have to. 17.3, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word word is truth. truth. That's exactly right. Thy word is truth. We're sanctified through the word, we believe in Christ, and it is done. And yet we can still continue to go through a process of sanctification until the day the Lord takes us home. And hopefully that's the case. It's not the case for everybody, but we will hope that it will be the case for the people that are in our lives. Okay, we're in the final verse of the chapter. The final verse. 176 days. 176 days to get through the book of Philippians. Right. Okay. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Okay, this one says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And then it says here, the NU text, which is what the NIV follows, reads your spirit. Okay. Now, some manuscripts do not have amen. That's right. Some manuscripts don't have amen. See, but I'm reading these footnotes. Footnotes are important. They help you tell you why there's a difference and which manuscript a certain uh, version uses. But let me ask you something. Your spirit and you all, what's the difference? You're in Christ. Your spirit is connected to God. So technically, there's very little difference. Okay. I know people will beat that over other people's heads. But if he says your spirits and then he says you all in a different version they understood that there's not that much difference between the two. As long as you're in Christ, your spirit is reconnected to God. Hey, okay, this final greeting is similar to that of many of his other closing statements. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's his words, is one of the greatest concepts found in the Bible. Man has fallen, and man needs grace for his salvation and for his continued walk with the Lord. Paul asks, for this stupendous blessing to be bestowed upon those in Philippi, and thus to us. In this petition, it is understood that they are undeserving of it. One cannot merit grace. I'll say that a couple times in the sermon this Sunday. You cannot merit grace. If you're trying to do something to merit God's favor, you ain't getting grace. You're getting something else, okay? Therefore, the petition is one of hope. 
that this unmerited favor of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's words, will continue to be lavished upon them, sinners already saved by that same grace. This grace, being unmerited, is especially highlighted here for them to consider and to look at their position before God. As with other churches addressed in his epistles, they have been tempted by those who reject Christ. They have been led astray to deeds of the flesh, and so on. Paul is reminding them that they stand by grace, and that this grace should be with them all. Some Greek manuscripts, as we already saw, say, with your spirit. Which is correct is debated. Either way, though, the spirit is the highest part of the man. It is the aspect of us which is reconnected to God because of grace, not works. And as I said, he's writing the believers, and so they already have the spirit. So it's either way. If it's not there, it doesn't matter. If it is there, it matters. I'm not saying that the correct uh, wording of the word of God doesn't matter because they say the same things. If you understand that the people that he is writing to are saved, then he is with their spirits, okay? So I'm not trying to say that it doesn't matter. Scholars will find this out someday, or we will find out when we stand before the Lord, okay? So, man spiritually died when Adam disobeyed God. Jesus Christ regenerates our spirit through his work. And this is something that I'll bring it up now, is that most people, when you say, what is man? They'll say, well, we're, we're a three-part. We're uh, body, soul, and spirit. And that is not correct. We are body and soul. The spirit is a reconnection to God. It's not a separate thing in us. We are not a triune nature by nature. Uh, the doctrine of man is that of anthropological hylomorphism. Man, anthropological hylomorphism, we have two natures, body and soul, okay? That is what we are. And we know that because of what Paul says about when we die, our spirit, or I'm sorry, our soul is present with the Lord. Well, no, he says it's naked. Oh, okay. Our body is separate from our body, and he says that that is not normal. That's I. It's true, but um, what you said is true. But the state of the soul, it's naked, and we long to be clothed with our right. heavenly. Okay, so that is our nature. The spirit is not a third thing. It is a reconnection to God. That is what was lost at the fall of man. There was this whole man. He disobeyed God. The connection to God was cut. And then the picture was given in them making fig leaves to cover themselves. And the fig is a picture of a spiritual connection to God or its lack. Okay. And so what we have here is man, man spiritually died when Adam disobeyed God. Jesus Christ regenerates our spirit through his work. And it can't happen any other way. And so no other person can be saved outside of Jesus Christ. It's that simple, okay? Faith in that deed and what Jesus Christ has done and faith alone is what brings this about. Paul asks them to consider this and let this grace continue to be that which guides their spirit. And with that, he closes with, amen. So be it. Life application. If you have come to the book of Philippians, read it, contemplated it, and still think that you should be pursuing works of the law in order to make God happy or happier with you, or if you believe that you can live a life of licentiousness because you are already saved and so it doesn't matter, you have a serious issue 
with understanding grace. You may not be saved at all. One cannot earn grace, and considering grace as a license to sin is perverse. Put away such things and stop sneering at God's offer of peace. Be reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. In the Psalms, he mentions my soul. I, I, I don't know how many times, but there is many, many, many times he mentions oh, yeah. my soul. Absolutely. So, so the, the soul of man is like you said. That is, it's a anthropological hylomorphism, dual nature, the soul body of man. The spirit is what is reconnected to God. So, the spirit, the Holy Spirit? What? No. Well, it's the Holy Spirit that reconnects us. That is correct. And that is the reconnection to God. Okay, so yes, but it's, our spirit is the connection to God. It's, yes, okay. So, um, uh, what was I going to say to you? The book of Philippians is now complete, and it would not be good to uh, stop the Bible class without giving the gospel, because somebody may click in for the, the uh, book of Philippians, and you know, every week when we have a sermon, I always do that, but I do not do that at the end of every Bible study, because mostly people come to Bible studies to learn doctrine. But there may be somebody that has been watching the book of Philippians and they don't understand the simple gospel, okay? The simple gospel is what we would call a stumbling block. A stumbling block is something that is so small that you don't see it and you just trip over it. You walk down the sidewalk, the oak tree has pushed up the concrete just enough where you don't see the lip and you trip over it, you fall and you break out your front teeth. That is a stumbling block. A stumbling block is not a big chair sitting in the middle of the, the uh, sidewalk and you have to just either move it or walk around it, okay? That's not a stumbling block. The reason why Paul calls the gospel a stumbling block is because it is so simple that people think there must be something more. There must be something more I need to do to be saved. And that is to say that what God tells you is the gospel isn't sufficient, but it is. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That means that you are a sinner. If you think that you don't have sin in you, then Jesus Christ is of no value to you. But if you understand that you have sinned, and just ask yourself a simple question, and you can either lie to yourself about it, or you can be honest. Have you ever told a lie? If you lie to yourself, then you'll say, no, I never have. But if you're honest, you will say, yeah, I've lied. And that one sin has separated you from your God. Okay, Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ was buried. That proves that he was dead, and it also proves that his, your sin, which he died for, is with him in the grave. Okay, And then it says that Jesus Christ rose again, according to Scripture. If you can believe that, that Christ actually came back to life, that means that he had no sin of his own. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He went into the grave with your sins, but he was raised because he had no sin of his own. The wages of sin is death. He never sinned, and therefore death could not hold him. And that means, the wonderful gospel message means that your sins are buried with Christ. He came out without sin, and that means that your sin is gone forever. Your sin is forgiven. Your sin is no longer imputed because you're no longer under law, and therefore your salvation is secure. God has done this for you. I would ask that you would believe that simple gospel message and be saved today. Heavenly Father, thank you for the simplicity of the gospel and forgive us of our hearts that say, there must be something I need to do to add to that. 
May that never be the case. May we trust in the grace of Christ to be saved. May we continue to trust it in our salvation. And may we stand before you exalting you because of the grace that you have bestowed upon undeserving us for all eternity, hailing the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it's in his beautiful name. We thank you for the book of Philippians and for the grace it has bestowed upon us. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're gonna push a button. Break, there it goes.